Um, thank you for those singing, everyone. Thanks for singing those songs. They um, bring back a lot of memories. Uh, I was honored to be able to serve my country in a time of war. Um, didn't do as much as a lot of the men that went before. Uh, new friends, though, that paid the ultimate price. And uh, thank you for honoring them on this day. It's uh, Pardon me if I get emotional, but um, it's a very uh, special day for me. Uh, take your Bibles, please, and we're going to be looking today. Uh, go to King, uh, 2 Kings, go to chapter 5, please. And um, we're going to be looking today at two military men. Two military men, they came to Christ. They came to Christ in different ways. They came to Christ for different purposes. Not uh, One came, to Christ, uh, came asking something through a prophet. The other one came directly to the Son of God when He was here on this earth. And we're we'll looking at how they did that and comparing and contrasting. Um, before we uh, get too far into that, uh, thank all the gentlemen here. Uh, so you can... Uh, a little bit light. Uh, you can tell who uh, who uh, the Marines are. Um, we wear it. We wear it uh, loud and proud, as we would say when we were uh, in the infantry. You were in the infantry too, correct, Brother Sam? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That we were both infantry men. And um, sorry if we. Uh, well, I won't apologize on his behalf, but sorry if I get a little overbearing with it. It's. Uh, Something that I'm very honored to have the opportunity to do, and uh, it was it's one of the great uh, times of my life. Second Kings chapter five. Uh, start there in verse one. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria, and he was also a mighty man in valor. But he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I a god to kill and to make alive? What? That this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elijah, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elijah. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of his, the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abnon far, far rivers in Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? 
So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burn of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimeon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimeon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimeon, the Lord pardon my servant in this thing, And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from his way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this country. Thank you for uh, the men who are willing to pay the ultimate price for it, pay the ultimate price for uh, everything that we have. Thank you so much for all that you've done. Please, Lord, only let me be a conduit of your words. Don't let the words be mine. And help us, Lord, to learn a great lesson from your scripture today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we see here we're going to look at the first man. We'll look at the next one a little bit later. But the first man here, we see Naaman. He's coming out of Syria, an area that is kind of a regional power slash bully at the time. It's not really the top power in the world, but they're probably the strongest uh, nation in the area. You see that by their raids where they uh, went into Israel kind of at will, captured people. Israel wasn't really able to do anything to stand against it. So not really a superpower, but they're a, they're a powerful place. We see Naaman, he's the captain of the host of this uh, nation. He's an important man. He's not quite a general, but he's up there. He's up there in the ranks. He's up, and he's a very, we see that he's a very proud man. But throughout, no matter how much power he has, no matter how much authority, no matter how much wealth he has, you see how much wealth he brings into Israel, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold. No matter how small these pieces of gold were, they're worth a lot. He's got six, uh, let's see here, what did it say, 600 of them, 6,000 of them? 6,000 pieces of gold. Pretty rich man. Quite a few changes of garments. Yet if you look at this individual, not even the, most would say not even the lowest person in the country would want to trade places with him. Because in spite of all his power, in spite of all his influence, in spite of all his wealth, he's a leper. He has an incurable disease that makes him an outcast from all of society. His skin is literally rotting on his body. It is a terrible disease. It is a a disease that if someone in Israel had that disease, they were cast out of the city. They weren't allowed to see their family, weren't allowed to see their friends, anything. No one could touch them. They were unclean. That's what this man has. And yet we see kind of the way that he approaches the prophet. Kind of the way he approaches Elijah. He hears about him through a servant who is captured. She's taken a slave and helps his wife. He hears about that, oh, there's this guy in Israel who can heal leprosy? Man of God? Okay. Goes and asks the king. The king says, okay, sure, yeah, go 
Well, I want this guy. This guy's a valuable asset to my empire. He's a valuable asset to my kingdom. I want him healed. Here, go with all this gold. Go with all this silver. Go with all these things of raiment. Go with great pomp and circumstance. You see, he rides about on a chariot. We see, you see that a little bit later on in the chapter. He's coming. He's, uh, in modern-day terms, he's, uh, I guess you could say, he drives in there, drives up to the palace, and either a limousine or a Ferrari. Picture that in today's terms. That's kind of what a chariot would have been. He's up there. Very proud man. And he approaches God with a lot of pride. You see that when he comes to the king, because naturally the king, ooh, someone has this much power from God, he must be king, he must be important, he must be influential. So king, heal me. The king, pretty wicked king. If you study the Bible, you'll realize that none of the kings of Israel were good, all 19 of them. There were a few kings of the southern kingdom, Judah, that were okay. None of them were really good. But all 19 19 kings of Israel were bad, were terrible, were ungodly men. This king thinks it's some kind of trick being played on him. It's like, this guy's just looking for a fight. He's looking to pick a fight with me. He's already bullying me. He's already taking my people captive. What more does he want? But Elijah hears about this, humble man of God. So he says, send him to me. And Nehemiah comes in, imagine him strutting in. All these garments of raiment, servants, lay out that gold there, lay out the silver there, at, make, straighten up that chariot, come on, get those horses, clean up that mess. Come on, I'm an important, I'm a big shot here. We're about to meet the man of God here. We're about to meet someone who's mighty, he's powerful. He's going to cure me. He's going to come out here, say a bunch of words, and cure me. Well, Elijah doesn't do that. And we see a very valuable lesson there. It's kind of a rabbit trail, but we see a valuable lesson there. God is not impressed by who we think we are or who we make ourselves out to be. He does not care. He is the one who made God is no respecter of persons. It says out throughout the Bible. And it even talks about, we'll look at that about salvation a little bit later. So we see he's proud, he's arrogant. No one want, no one would want to be him, no. Even the uh, sin of all sins, he's a slaveholder. He has a servant in his house. And then the, one of the more deviant parts of his character, one of the more unredeeming parts, we see Elisha comes out, not through himself. He sends a messenger. Just, no, this guy's a big shot. I'm not going to, no. Because imagine if Elisha would have come out. What, kind, what would that have said about God? That's who Elisha is representing. He said, oh, I'm coming out. Yes, I will heal this man. He has given me so much silver, so much gold. Yes, I will heal him because he has done great things. No, he kind of not necessarily talks down to him, but kind of gives him a little shot to bring him down to earth a bit. Sends a servant out there, tell him, go wash seven times in the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River, that, some of you have been to Israel. You know that river gets high and it gets low, it gets muddy. It's not considered, those of you that study world geography, it's not one of the great rivers that you study. It's not one of the ones. You'll learn about the Yellow River in China. You'll, you'll learn about the Amazon in South America. You'll learn about even about the Mississippi or the Nile, all those other rivers. Yeah, world geography kind of looks over the Jordan River. It's kind of a humble place. Not much, not really anything. It says, go wash in that seven times. What? What do you mean go wash in some muddy river seven times? Can't you see I'm already having problems with my skin? Now you want me to go wash in some muddy river? We see that Naaman, proud, arrogant, so proud and arrogant, he does not want to do what God said. He's unwilling to humble himself at first. 
He's immediately taken aback. No, I'm too good for this. I'm too good to do it God's way. I will do it my way. And even his servants point that out to him. You see in verse 13 there, look at that again. And his servants came near and spake him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? Like, picture that. His servants are pretty much telling him something along the lines of, if he had commanded you to give him that chariot, give him another one, stay away from Israel for, for the rest of your life, you would have done it. If he would have said, return all the Israeli slaves in Syria, you would have done it. You would have done anything if he had asked you to climb a mountain, if he had asked you to walk some distance, but you won't even wash in the River Jordan? <laughs> this is foolishness. It's a simple thing. He's unwilling. And take very good heed to that because that will come apart in the next part, in the next person we look at. He thought he was wiser than God. And then when he finally did obey God, he did it begrudgingly. He did it with great, fine. He went down, dipped himself seven times according to saying, and his, and his flesh came again like into the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So when he, find, so when he does obey God, oh, it worked. Isn't that amazing? You obey God. God doesn't want your riches. God doesn't want wealth. God doesn't care about power. He's not impressed by what kind of chariot you drive or what kind of car you have or what you're in charge of. And you see that even again when he goes and returns. But another thing you see about him, you see that even after God healed him, he still does not fully get it. Look down there in verse 18. In this thing, the Lord pardon thy servant, talking about himself, that when my master goeth in the house of Rimeon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimeon, when I bow myself down in the house of Rimeon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. So we see that he comes to Christ half-heartedly. In the verses before that, you see that he's going to offer, to, he's not going to offer to, to Rimeon anymore. Rimeon, uh, without going into great detail, is the false god that the Syrians worshipped. We see that He's not going to offer idols to him anymore or offer sacrifices to him. It's like, okay, I won't sacrifice, but you see the king. He, I got to keep my position. I got to keep that. The king, he goes to this temple. This is the God he worships. And just, just it'll be fake whenever I do it. Is God okay with that? And you see there that he half-heartedly worships God. He doesn't fully worship him. He sacrifices to him, but he doesn't go all the way. What are the people of God told to do when it comes to idols? Not supposed to have them on the first commandments. Make unto thee no graven image or any likeness of any things heaven above, earth beneath, or in waters under the sea. Bow not thyself down to them or worship them. Thou us about the Lord the God, I'm a jealous God. In the Ten Commandments there. You're not to bow down to idols. Not to worship them in any way, shape, or form. But eh, it's one of the first commandments, but I can still do it, right? And we see a little bit of a lesson here in how we deal with, and this is talking about how you deal with someone who comes out of a life of sin and a life of false worship, how, we're to, how we are to deal with them. Look at how Elisha deals with him. And he, the prophet, said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. So Elijah tells him, go. It, okay, if that's what you're going to do, God just healed you. God just healed you of an incurable disease. And 
you're still not willing to worship him, Elisha doesn't berate him. He's going to let the Holy Spirit do his work. Now, let me uh, go off on a little bit of a planned rabbit trail here. It is it's in my notes. Rabbit trail in my notes. Um, this type of grace is not to be extended to people like myself. I've said this before. It's not to be extended to people like myself who grew up in a Christian home, who grew up in church, who have been taught by their parents the truth. A lot of you young people out there that grew up in Christian homes, listen very carefully. The Bible verse says, unto whom much is given, much shall be required. You don't get this kind of exception. That exception is only for people who God has saved out of a very, very trying circumstance. You are given a lot, and a lot is expected of you. If you go astray, or you try to worship whatever, put whatever before God, be it your job, because that's what Naaman's doing here. He's afraid of losing his job before the king. He's afraid of losing his wealth and power. If I don't do this, the king's going to fire me. Those of us that grew up in Christian homes, in church, no. We have no excuse to put anything before God. Neither do the people who newly come to Christ. However, our God is a merciful God. And He's a gracious God. And He will allow it. However, that does not extend to us. A little bit of a rabbit trail. So, getting off on that now, take your Bibles again. This is the first man who comes before God asking to be healed. Healed for himself. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at a man who actually comes to Christ himself, in the person, in the flesh. Matthew chapter 8. When you get there, we're going to look at verses 5 through 13. Matthew chapter 8. Starting on verse 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. All right, let's pause right there. Pause. So we're going to read down to verse 13, but I'll pause right there. Now, let's take a look at this second man that comes to Christ. The second one, he is a centurion in the Roman Empire. Now, Picture in your minds, compare Rome to Syria. Syria is a regional power and a regional bully. Rome is a world power, having perhaps the greatest empire from that time through to the time of the British Empire. Those of you historical purists out there will argue that the Mongolian Empire had a greater landmass. However, the Mongolian Empire did not have a great navy that conquered across the sea. The Romans had everything that an empire could want. They had a great navy. They had a great military. They had a great economy. They lasted through multiple rulers, not just one. So this is a great army. This is a man, he has a lot more reason to be proud. He is a pretty high up member. He's over approximately anywhere from 80 to 100 men, maybe even more. He's fought, you've had to have fought in numerous campaigns to get to this position. To get to the position of centurion, you probably started out as just a regular uh, infantry soldier, and you signed an enlistment period of 25 years. And good luck surviving 25 years. Our military asks for 20, and they don't put you in constant conflict throughout those 20. Normally, you're not on the front line past your first eight. However, it does happen. 
But these individuals respected to be in a phalanx hand-to-hand combat for 25 years. So this man has a lot more reason to be proud than Naaman. However, we see that he is not and how he comes to Christ. He does not come to Christ on his own behalf. Who does he come to Christ by? Observe that. Take a look at that verse. He comes on the behalf of his servant. Another great lesson in leadership. Talking from our military experience, uh, some of us here reached the position of NCO in the military. Not the highest position, not near the level of a centurion. However, what we were taught about leadership, at least what I was, was that you're not given your leadership position, and listen very carefully, men, fathers, you're not given your position for your own benefit. You're given positions of leadership, and this does translate into the church, for the benefit of those under you, for those you've been placed in authority over. As an NCO, you were the last one to eat. You were the last one to sleep. You were the last one to get ammo. You were the last one to receive any comforts, if you were a good NCO. It was not for you. You were constantly checking on your men. You were, con- you were checking on every aspect of their behavior. We see that's what this centurion is doing. His servant is sick of the palsy and incurable disease. How many times have we seen throughout Scripture when people uh, get sick or they get halt? How many times have we seen in our own lives someone gets hurt at a job or something happens to them, they're disposable and they're just let go, just cast to the side? This centurion did not do that. This man who has a palsy, he's of no military use. What can a guy with a palsy do? You're supposed to carry a 50-pound shield, a 15-pound spear. You're supposed to be able to march miles across desert and arid terrain. You're in Palestine. And your shoes, they ain't like the comfortable boots we got, relatively. They're pieces of leather with nails stuck in the bottom of them. person with palsy can barely walk on their own, much less than something like that, much less carrying weight. This individual, by all military terms, is useless. Yet this centurion doesn't throw him out. He tries to heal him. We see an example of that in Scripture a little bit later on when it talks about ye which are spiritual to restore those that have fallen away. But continuing on, and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. You see that this man here, he understands and he demonstrates perfectly how God, how Jesus is in charge of the entire world. Naaman didn't get that. Naaman was too good to go baptize, to go, not baptize, but to wash in a river he thought was dirty. This man sees Christ as he really is. Christ is all powerful. Christ has disease under his control. He has the entire world under his control. Jesus does not need to go and physically touch someone. Naaman wanted, wanted Elisha to come out, smite him, say some words, and be healed. This man has no such predispositions. He says, Lord, I'm not even worthy that you should come to my house. He doesn't say, my servant's in the barracks. Don't go in the barracks. Trust me, all of you that were in the military, particularly those of you who were in infantry, <laughs> Jesus is not worthy to come into the barracks. Barracks are a terrible place. <laughs> uh, the crazy things you see there. No, this 
is a centurion. He's in charge of all of them. He's a rich officer. Normally, it's pretty good honor to come and go to your officer's house. They had pretty nice places when we were in the military. Is that right, Sam? Officers did pretty good. Officer club was always pretty well stocked, wasn't it? Unlike the enlisted club. Anyways, but even this man realizes that even though this is probably the best of the best the military has to offer, it's not worthy of Christ. He realizes where he stands before God. He is a sinner. He is not part of God's chosen people, the Jews. And he recognizes that. And he says, I'm not worthy of you to come to my house. Matter of fact, you don't have to. I don't, I'm not going to take away from your time. You don't have to. All you have to do is say it. Everything is under you. You made this world. You made everything in it. Just say it, and it's done. <coughs> Pardon me. So Jesus says it. But not before that, he says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out unto utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus saith unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Let's take a look at that again from another point. Going back to the illustration, I used a little rabbit trail I got off on about us that grew up in Christian homes. Shame on us if we don't follow the ways our parents taught us. Shame on us. It should not be said that people who grew up in a Christian home, if they wandered away from the home, they wandered away from Christ. They wandered away from God. We've been taught it all. Just like these children of Israel. Some of them, these children of the kingdom, went to hell even though Jesus walked among them. They were taught the Bible from a young age. They were required to memorize the Bible. Not to the, uh, the way our Sunday schools do it is not up to the level of what these young men did. They had to memorize, many of them, the first five books of the Bible. I don't know if anybody here has that. If you do, congratulations. Good on you. You're and shoulders above me. However, these people did not, even though they had all that, they still perished. Some of them did. Don't let that be said about any of us who grew up in Christian homes. It's not on your parents if you don't follow Christ. That's on you. Say that's pretty harsh for Memorial Day. Well, I came out of the military. I heard a lot worse. So... And we are in a spiritual war, by the way. So maybe we need to have some of the mindset of those that are fighting a war. Maybe we need to act like it a little bit. So this man has great faith. Why? And Jesus couldn't find his faith in all of Israel. How was that faith manifested? Because he understood where he stood before God. He understood how it worked. He understood how authority worked. He understood his position in authority. We see that because of how he cared for those under him how he did not use his position for himself, he used it for the benefit of his troops, just as we leaders are to use whatever position we get for the benefit of those under us. And he also understood that he does not need to physically see Jesus in the flesh doing something in order for it to be true. He had faith. He had faith in God. Oh, I wish that 
Everyone could have faith like that, myself included. What as we close today? One, just think about that. Think about Naaman. Don't act like that. If you haven't come to Christ, don't try to do it your own way. Your own way is not good enough. The Bible talks about salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by grace. Many people will do things to get to heaven, that to, trying to get to heaven, but they won't humble themselves before God. They'll go to a church every day. They'll give inordinate amounts of money to a religion. They'll practice and learn whatever seances they have to say. They'll starve themselves. They'll sit on, they'll try to walk across coals. They'll twist and contort their bodies into various shapes trying to reach spiritual nirvana. Yet they won't simply believe in a man that is well-recorded, probably one of the most well-recorded and documented men in all of history, Jesus Christ. There's more proof of him being Christ and that he lived on this earth than there is that Abraham Lincoln was president of America. There's more written proof. There's more literary proof that Jesus Christ was the Son of God than that Lincoln was the president of America. And people still won't simply believe that. Turn in your Bibles, those of you. Turn of you to Romans chapter uh, 10. Romans chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 9. This is very important. So if you have a Bible, you don't know where that is, don't be ashamed to ask someone next to you to help you find it. This is a very important part. Talking about how people will do anything to come to Christ. Anything to try to get to heaven. They'll do anything, but they won't do something this simple. Here, if you want to know Christ as your Savior, first you have to realize that you're a sinner. Everybody ought to realize that. Nobody here is broken. Nobody here has fulfilled all the Ten Commandments. We've all either lied, stolen, cheated, had a bad thought, had anger, done something wrong, disobeyed our parents. We've all done something wrong. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And the way out of that is this. Romans chapter 10, read in verse, starting there in verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Not if you pay money to a church. Not if you attend church. Not if you say a chant on a string of beads. Not if you twist and contort your body. Not if you do any of those things. What you have to do is right here in the Bible, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And explains how it works in the verses after that. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever, that means everybody and anybody, believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. It does not matter on your race. Salvation is not predicated on who you were born as. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And with that, I'll ask the instrumentalists uh, to come forward, sing a song of invitation. Did we have one of those picked out, Pastor, or no?